optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now would have seen an appropriate time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Helix Sleep. Last year, I focused on dramatically improving a few things. Surprise, surprise. Most notably, the quality of my sleep, which seems to affect just about everything. This led me to revisit, you name it, my daily routine, morning routine, exercise, diet, all the way to what I slept on. And I ended up getting all new beds here in Austin, Texas, including mattresses from Helix Sleep. Helix has built a sleep quiz that takes two minutes to complete, and they use the answers to match your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress. Whether you're a side sleeper, hot sleeper, cold sleeper, or you like plush, you like firm, with Helix, there's no more guessing or confusion. Just go to helixsleep.com forward slash Tim, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. That is their promise. For couples, Helix can even split the mattress down the middle, providing individual support needs and feel preferences for each side. They have a 10-year warranty, and you can test drive your mattress for 100 nights risk-free. Right now, Helix is offering up to $125 off of all mattress orders. So check it out. Get up to 125 off at helixsleep.com forward slash Tim. That's helixsleep.com forward slash Tim for $125 off your mattress order. Take a look, helixsleep.com forward slash Tim. This episode of the Tim Ferriss Show is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time, if I could only take one supplement, what would it be? The answer is inevitably Athletic Greens. I view it as, and a lot of you now view it as, all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it way back in 2010 in The 4-Hour Body, and I did not get paid to do so. I've been using it since before that, and I use it in a lot of different ways. I travel with it to avoid getting sick or to help mitigate the likelihood of getting sick. I take it in the morning to ensure optimal performance, and overall, it covers my bases if I can't get what I need from whole food meals throughout the rest of the day. And if you want to give Athletic Greens a try, they're offering a free 20-count travel pack for first-time users. I nearly always travel with at least three or four of these one-dose bags. In other words, if you buy Athletic Greens as a first-time buyer, you now get, for a limited time, an extra $79 in free product. So check out the details at athleticgreens.com forward slash Tim. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Tim for your free travel pack with any purchase. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, 
I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Well, hello, boys and girls, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers, to tease out the thought processes, the best practices, the influences, and so on, that you can hopefully copy and paste into your own life in some fashion to test out the toolkits of people who are the best at what they do. My guest this episode is a return guest, Josh Waitzkin. He was, in fact, the second ever guest in episode two of this podcast. We've known each other a long time. Josh Waitzkin is author of The Art of Learning. He is an eight-time U.S. national chess champion, a two-time world champion in Tai Chi push hands, and the first Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt under nine-time world champion Marcelo Garcia, widely believed to be the greatest grappler who has ever lived, at least in the world of BJJ. For the past 12 years, maybe 13, maybe 14 now, Josh has been channeling his passion for the outer limits of the learning process towards training elite mental performers in business and finance, or finance, if you prefer, and to revolutionizing the education system through his nonprofit foundation, The Art of Learning Project. Josh is currently in the process of taking on his fourth and fifth disciplines, paddle surfing and foiling, which we will discuss some length in this episode. Josh is always a fantastic thought partner. He is constantly pushing back at anything that I say which reflects sloppy thinking or imprecise thinking or consensus thinking, and he's a lovely guy. So without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with none other than Josh Waitzkin. Joshua, good day, sir. Timbo. <laughs> good to see you yet again. And we've had a chance to spend a bunch of time together, and all sorts of questions have come to mind that I've wanted to ask you, and all sorts of discussions have come up over meals and wine and cold plunges that I've wanted to explore with you. Let's talk about, if you're open with uh, open to, rather, starting here, uh, some, some recent explorations of learning, and specifically some insights related to someone you introduced me to quite a few years ago, uh, Maurice Ashley. Yeah, man. Uh, Maurice it was a, um, 
I mean, as a dear friend, and we became very close when I was 11 years old playing chess. And between the ages of around 11 and 23, 24, we studied chess five, six hours a week together, sparred together, traveled around the world competing together against one another and as a team, as training partners. And it was actually really cool. He came to visit us uh, a couple weeks ago, and it was a really unusual life opportunity because Maurice and I haven't talked about chess in about 20 years. So imagine going all in, just deep dive with someone for 13 or 14 years in an art, not talking about that art for 20 years, growing in different directions and then coming together. And a lot of what we were exploring um, were questions around, for example, what were our assumptions or our shared constructs 20 years ago, things that we agreed to be true that we now don't believe to be true. And for context, I mean, Maurice was a high-level chess player. How oh, yeah. Would, how, would you, how would you, for people who don't know the chess world, how would you describe? He's a strong grandmaster. Um, yeah. And we, I mean, we grew up, I mean, kind of, we came up the ranks together. He mm-hmm. was, he's older than me. He's about, I think, 10, 11 years older than me. And um, he's a beautiful soul. And we, we were, I mean, back in the day, we were just brothers, very similar to my relationship with Dan Caulfield that I have today in, in martial arts and now foiling. Maurice was my sparring partner in, in the chess world. And um, I, think that, like, I think what you're referring to in terms of what we were exploring was, was fascinating because, I mean, a lot of what I think about today is the emptiness of mental models or the, or the, the relativity, the non-absolute nature of any kind of ideas or, or constructs or networks of ideas that we have, things that we believe today we'll likely see as somewhat flawed five years from now. And so I work on seeing them as flawed today and seeing their, the holes in them. And so w- what was really interesting to explore with Maurice were what were the things that we believed as pretty strong chess players back in the day that we just no longer believed to be true, individually and collectively. And what came up? A lot came up. Um, what came up for you? Well, but, well one of the... The direction of thought that I found most interesting, it's not just what were our false constructs 20 years ago, but what are the common root structures to my current constructs and my false constructs 20 years ago? I see. So in other words, what, did you, what do you now disagree with in terms of beliefs you held 20 years ago that nonetheless sprouted from sort of roots or seeds that current beliefs share? That I may or may not be present to. Yeah, and then, you may not. And then part of the challenge is to be present to them and then examine mm-hmm. their emptiness today. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting differences between Maurice and me 20 years ago is that when Maurice studied chess, he was extremely idealistic, um, fanciful, it, it, somewhat, somewhat to a fault competitively. So there were moments where, for example, Maurice would be playing a beautiful chess game and he would make a mistake as we all do, and he would kind of lose interest in the game because like, the poetic perfection or something of what he'd been creating had been marred. And, and his idealism was obviously so beautiful to me, but also was sometimes a little, bit, a little bit frustrating when we were training together. And that frustration, you know, we both learned from, and it was really interesting to explore. So it was an example that came to mind for me where there was a moment, I recall viscerally, when I was probably 22 years old, we were studying a, a variation of the Nidorf Sicilian, and we saw a there was this position that would come after three incorrect decisions. So in other words, in this complex opening that we were studying, there would be three mistakes that we made, and it led to this fascinating position. And Maurice was like, we should study that position. And I thought that was completely impractical. Um, I was like, dude, w- w- what are we going to study this for? It's imprecise, 
right? We should spend our time setting a position we might actually see. And it was an example of of me feeling that Maurice was being kind of overly fanciful or idealistic in the training, in the moment of training, and Maurice just being fascinated by something and seeing it would be cool and interesting to learn from, potentially. So in that moment, I had a lot of confidence that he was barking up the wrong tree. And when I think about that now, 20 years later, I was absolutely wrong. I think that studying that position, so much of what learning is at a high level to me today is conceptual learning, thematic learning. It's not about anything local. And so that position had so much dynamism to it. So like the convergence of different kinds of dimensions. And it would, we would have learned so much from studying. We actually did end up studying it. We did learn, learn so much from it. But when I think about it today, like that was a massive blind spot for me. So there was, so then how do I deconstruct that into a common root structure today? Well, I think that I have a, if you look at the way my buddy Dan and I um, studied martial arts together for a lot of years, we took on Tai Chi push hands together starting in 2000 in training camps for the 2002 and 2004 world championships. And then we transitioned to Brazilian jiu-jitsu, reached high levels in that art, and then took on, now we're taking on surfing and foiling together, really all in on foiling. And one of the differences between the way Dan and I approach learning is that I would argue that he's a much more gifted athlete than me. And I'm much more of a deconstructive learner than Dan is. So I, I tend to, decon early in the learning process around something, I'll tend to deconstruct it down to the component parts, which might be technical or often will be thematic. Um, and then I'll internalize those component parts, and then I'm ready just to go all in on chaos. Dan likes to just throw himself off a cliff. And then he, he reaches his technical clarity by just jumping right into the, the chaos. And so we have different paths to a similar place, and we've learned to navigate that together. So the interesting thing is that there's a little bit of, a, of an identity or a stiffness in my approach there. So there's something about the early stages of learning a new part, for example, of foiling. For example, we've recently started dialing in toe foiling, um, whipping on a jet ski, whipping somebody on like the lightest possible high-performance foil board and um, riding big waves. Can you describe for people who may not have heard our last conversation together what a foil board is? So foiling is you're on a surfboard, and then beneath the surfboard is a two-and-a-half to three-foot mast, which is sort of like a big guillotine. Yep. And then beneath that is a wing, which can be yeah, a big like or a small. giant razor blade. Yes, yeah, exactly. It's a really safe art. And um, the wing, is, once you're in a wave, the wing is what you're riding. So the wing is, is interacting with underwater wave energy. So you get lifted off, the board is lifted off of the surface of the water for right. people who are The wing is in the water this. and you're standing on a surface which is a few feet above the water. And it's crazy because it's frictionless, it's incredibly fast, it's so dynamic. It's awesome. I mean, I've never been more in love with an art in my life. And the purpose, if, if I am getting this right, of using a foil, aside from the different kinesthetic experience and aesthetic experience is to be able to move faster on bigger waves or to, is, is that how foiling came about as a, as well, a technology? Well, there's lots of, yes, I guess maybe that's, that's a part of why it came out. I mean, you're above the surface chop. So when it can be choppy weather and if you're on a foil, you're just above it all. So you're frictionless. So conditions that are unsurfable are foilable because um, the surfboard would be chattering on all this surface texture and the foil is above it. Um, I think that, you know, so much of how I personally relate to it is, is frictionlessness. I think of, of learning as unobstructed self-expression. So friction is a form of obstruction. And what's fascinating is foiling, you're, you're, you're just, it's such a powerful physical embodiment of that principle. And I know we're going to hop around because we both had a lot of coffee, but uh, so we, we were talking about these sort of labels and inflexibility. So we may come back to that, but 
One thing that has really impressed me that you and Dan share in common is, uh, I, I suppose you probably focus on this perhaps more, you correct me, but the use of technology and training to really accumulate focused repetitions, right? So for instance, you have a foil board and then you have an e-foil, right? So, so how would you use an e-foil? So we, we took on, for, so the way I took on foiling was I got an e-foil um, and I spent a, about two months flying around 2,000 miles on flat water. So I learned foil dynamics, just first of all, working on, on flight on, with a motor. So an e-foil is a foil with a prop on it with a lithium battery. And, um, and I was flying in flat water at between 15 and 25 miles an hour, just getting used to flight dynamics. Because being on a foil board, it's really, it's micro, micro recalibration. If you back weight, you fly up. If you front weight, you go down. If you overweight, you crash into the floor, into the water or fly, or the, if the wing comes out of the water, you're, you're catapulting. So I worked on flight dynamics, then I worked on brake falls, which is a hugely important part of it, which I don't see a lot of foilers do, which is really training in the art of falling, which is something that Dan and I did, of course, for many, many years in the martial arts. Um, and it's not just learning how to fall when you want to fall. It's actually turning a fall that's out of control into a break fall. So it's, it's really learning how to prepare for the moments you haven't prepared for. And, um, and being good at break falls opens, like when I took on one wheeling, right, which is an electronic skateboard with a big wheel, one wheel in the middle around New York City, you know, I had a lot of falls at 25 miles an hour into New York City pavement. And if you don't know how to break fall, you're going to get hurt. But if you do, you can just roll out of it and be fine. So I think that being comfortable falling, it's a really important principle, I would say. And we could talk about designing the learning process around principles as opposed to around techniques. So, so like the technical arsenal of break falls, like the, it would fall into the principle of just being comfortable falling. And then you can take a lot more risk than you can take otherwise because the fall will be something that's part of your domain. Well, let's, let's take an example of practice that I've never heard anyone else discuss. Maybe this is common practice. I suspect it is not. But you've achieved world-class levels in multiple arts. That in and of itself is very uncommon. With foiling specifically, and we won't spend an hour talking about only foiling, but I think it's, uh, I want to highlight for people that this is a discussion of learning and principles using the example of foiling. Using an e-foil to go through boils over and over and over again. Is that principle-based? Is that technique? And uh, perhaps you could you could just paint a picture of, of what a boil is and why that why you chose to practice in that way. Right. Okay. So zooming out for a moment, the way I think about taking on these arts, it's understanding what are the component parts and doing lots of reps in them so that you're comfortable with them and then putting them all together. So my learning process won't look great in the first couple days or couple weeks. Um, and I'm not concerned about that. And I think that one of the interesting parts of it is like people, I think that a lot of what's happening in surf culture or foil culture is people have these Instagram accounts and they're always posting videos of what they're doing and they have to look cool. And so there's this group think that I observe around what looks cool and what the micro culture will approve of. And so you can't really do things outside of that. And so for example, going through boils, when you're on big wave faces on a reef, Sometimes there's an upwelling of water that, that or like, you know, if the water interacts with a, sh a shallow spot or a ledge or a, a big rock, you'll have a boil that it's just like a big shooting up of water pressure. From it the looks bottom. like boiling water. 
it looks like boiling water. And when a wing hits that, or when a, cor- or a piece of a wing hits that, a foil wing, you just can get thrown. So you have to learn to absorb it. So you have to learn how to, wa- to either weave around it, weave through the boils, or absorb them. And so one of the things the e-foil opened up was the ability to, to really seek out boils and learn how to, you know, lowering level a little bit so you're not at the top of your wing, when, uh, of your mast when you enter it. And then just learning what the boil does if you hit it if you hit the wings straight on, on the corners, lots of falling. But for example, putting on a palmet, putting on an impact vest, those things don't look cool on Instagram. And so you can't do those things if you're going to be posting on Instagram every day, right? But if you're living kind of a bizarre hermit life, like I guess I do, and, and not doing that kind of thing. You guess, I can confirm. You can look, I mean, embracing looking absurd in certain moments is, is a very interesting hack to what others might not be taking advantage of in the learning process. And so I, I spent, I mean, I, I went over hundreds and hundreds of boils on the e-foil and learned how to absorb them and had incredible crashes, but then I learned how to dial in those crashes and then I learned how to hit the boils at different speeds and absorb. Sometimes I, I mean, I got thrown off at mid thirties miles an hour after it and whipped me in on a, on a, off of the jet ski on a four pound foil board the other day. And this boil just erupted me and I went flying. I mean, it's an ongoing process. Um, at different speeds, but, but uh, yeah, I was just going to say, I remember the first time we spoke about this because it coincided with a week later and we talked about this, me going to volunteer at something called Zendo at a, a festival called lightning in a bottle, which I, I wanted to attend specifically not because I'm a concert or festival goer, but because it's effectively like a mini Burning Man that skews to younger ages. And for people who don't know, Zendo is a peer-supported harm reduction volunteer outfit that helps people who are going through difficult drug experiences, generally or oftentimes psychedelic experiences, that do not require medical intervention. So there's medical triage for people who have who have done something that could be physiologically dangerous, but otherwise. For me, it was the equivalent of you going through boils. Because if, for instance, and I'm not a facilitator, I do not, uh, I do not uh, support or have, have not chosen as a career supporting people going through psychedelic experiences, but I wanted to develop a level of confidence that if I were in an environment where I was called upon to handle a worst case scenario, that I would at least have a certain degree of comfort and exposure to that. But it's really uncommon that you would get a lot of repetitions with that. That would in fact mean that you would in some way be manufacturing these terrible conditions. So so one of the few ways to do it, it was to volunteer at Zendo where you get these kind of red line cases and you get put in the crisis tent over and over and over and over and over again. And uh, we had a really uh, rich conversation about that, about this type of deliberate practice with the edge cases that are nonetheless really important to develop a degree of comfort around. And I think that you can do it thematically or or non-locally. You don't have to do it specifically in the thing. So for example, one of the beautiful things that the e-foil opened up to me and Dan was the ability to just, there was this one wave that we fell in love with, this offshore reef, and we just, it would just mound up into this super steep ramp that just kept on going. And it was actually two converging ramps and we called it ramps. And this wave was it was sort of like the drop that you'd make surfing that would last a second. It would, that, that drop would last 45 to 60 seconds. And 
a, a buddy who, who surfed it said, said it would, we should call it aneurysms because it felt like you're having an aneurysm that lasts for 60 seconds. But we did so many thousands of those waves, then it, it, it's like you get used to the aneurysm. And then the aneurysm becomes mellow, and then it, and it's just a mellow place to be. And then, the, then you translate that over to foiling in on like the lightest, most high-performance board possible. The drop you might down you make down a steep face before a bottom turn We've just done so many of those that lasted for so long. That these sections that would have felt super critical to us before um, just don't anymore. For, similar, you can do cold plunges. So if you do, if you're cold plunging in 33 degree water, your body's going to go into that same freak out fight or flight place, and then learning to breathe through that and come out the other side. I mean, cold plunges are in a non-local way a great way to train at making steep drops, surfing or foiling. Yeah, it's controlling it, or not control. It may not even be controlling a panic response, but becoming familiar with the physiological response to panic, right? On some level, and and uh, those people listening obviously can't see what's going on here, but uh, you have a you have a richness, <laughs> a smorgasbord of cold plunge options here, and thirty three degrees is is, is not a. Uh, a grand exaggeration because I unplugged one of the cold plunges a few days ago because it was turning into an entire ice block. Uh, so <laughs> for the last few days we've been getting inside and being surrounded by ice. Uh, and the, the, I think, uh, the idea of kind of non-local practice, um, applies also to what, what I was mentioning, right? Because I've done, I've accompanied doctors on ER rounds, for similar reasons, right? To become more comfortable with an environment that seems out of control or unpredictable. And uh, another option within the realm of, say, psychedelic harm reduction would be uh, engaging or facilitating in large breathwork groups where you will have people, uh, whether it's holotropic or something else, respond in really exaggerated uh outwardly expressive ways in these groups and you have to keep them from say flailing and hurting themselves or hurting someone else uh how do you uh what types of practice have become more important to you if you're looking back at your uh say competitive career in chess or your practice of jujitsu what types of practice or thematic practice have become more important have you learned to value more or less. Does anything come to mind? Conceptual practice, thematic practice. I think that, that, for example, building on what you just said, I would say that the tension one feels as a chess player, the buildup of tension, both psychologically and technically on what's happening between the chess pieces, is very similar to, it might be difficult for people visualizing people sitting at a chessboard and compared to like dropping down big waves, but it's very similar to the feeling one has dropping down big waves. You feel, it's the, it, you feel the desperate urge to release the tension. And similar in cold water, right? And so the, the, the path that I've worked with, so initially it's pain, it's red alert, get me out of here. Then it's becoming at peace in that pain and then it's learning how to enjoy it. And so like the great chess players, like someone like Magnus Carlsen, one thing that's unique, fairly unique about him is he seems to really enjoy tension, right? And I've, I've trained in my life, I never got there as a chess player, um, but I, I have gotten there in other things. Just learning to just completely love chaos. Um, so the tension isn't isn't grinding on you. You're not a tectonic plate moving toward eruption. You're um, 
you're getting stronger as the tension builds. And, and that's something that I think is beautiful to train at. Something like cold water is just something you can replicate every day to do it. The e-foil opened that up in drops foiling, right? Um, so I think to answer your question, conceptual learning has been, when you learn a technique, you're learning one thing. When you're learning a principle that embodies a technique, you might be learning a thousand things. And so designing a learning process around the meta. Um, this is part of the reason why I think my approach in, to surfing and foiling has looked so strange to somebody who are lifetime surfers because I'm not approaching it technically. The, the tech, I'm approaching, I'm working on internalizing certain core concepts, principles. The techniques fall within the, like the tree beneath the principle. But so meta training, I think, would be the most important answer to that question. You're also coming into foiling with a huge disadvantage slash advantage, which is you have not spent decades surfing. Right. Right. So you're looking at things very differently. And uh, just to, to give one example, and as background, before we began recording this, you let me you encouraged me to read through a Slack channel that you have with your team where you're bouncing different ideas uh, off of one another. And they're stress testing your ideas also, asking you to clarify things, define things. And you mentioned at one point frontside turns, not to get too deep in the weeds, but frontside turn, different from backside turn, and then realizing that you could practice that on an e-foil by just effectively, if correct me if I'm wrong, but what I read was kind of going in circles. Yeah, right? spinning in super tight circles. And yeah. you're doing just hundreds and thousands of repetitions that would be impossible to replicate <laughs> except over an extremely long, I mean, weeks, months? Oh, years. Years on a surfboard. And so you, you were able to see that where I think uh, per perhaps others might not um, Certainly some would, but uh, that struck me as a huge advantage that you have, that you're seeing things with beginner's eyes and you're already technologically enabled. So you have just a, a greater buffet of options. I think it's really important for me to be clear. I I'm just a beginner in yeah. the surf and foil world, right? Yeah. I mean, most of the people who are foiling have been surfing for 20 or 30 years, th their whole lives, because foiling is, is super hard. It's surfing much faster with an extra vertical dimension. Um, the interesting thing about it is, is I'm learning how to surf and paddle surf through foiling. The lines that I can draw foiling are much better than the lines I can draw paddle surfing. And what's fascinating is I went out surfing. I'm right now foiling, you know, six days a week, maybe in surfing, paddle surfing one day a week. I went out paddle surfing yesterday because um, the foil, the, the swell dissipated a little bit. And it wasn't great foil conditions where we go. And I, um, I was amazed at the breakthroughs I've made surfing just from the foiling breakthroughs I've made over the past couple of weeks. It, it's really interesting. So I'm coming at this in every ways, in every way backwards. I approached, I, I'm taking on the art of surfing and paddle surfing. I started in my late thirties, not as a six year old kid. And so that also speaks to some of the things that Dan and I, who this is, this relates to Dan as well, things we need to do. Like we haven't gone sideways forward like been in surf stance, moving forward at high speed sideways. It's a very simple idea, right? If you're skateboarding or you're surfing or snowboarding, you're like in a sideways posture and you're going forward very fast. We haven't done that a lot in our lives. So things like the one wheel, which Dan and I both did, and then the e-foil, 
like that just gave us a huge amount of reps. And then the amount of waves we've been able to take e-foiling, we've been learning about surfing waves through those reps. Um, and so, and you're right, I think, it, so it's a disadvantage in a lot of ways that, we, that we're coming at it so late, but it's also a wonderful advantage because we're not socialized by any of the assumptions that a lifetime surfer would make. Similarly, in like the Chinese martial arts, taking on the Chinese martial arts, there's lots of things that Chinese martial artists who are lifetime aficionados will not consider. That coming at it as an outsider from the chess world, I could take advantage of. Similar in the Brazilian jiu-jitsu world. Um, we could have conversations about those. I think we actually have spoken about those over the years. But, <laughs> but all of these arts have their blind spots. Let me just go back, just, just finish the circle one time, because we began speaking about this exploration I was doing with Maurice relative to the chess and the common root structure right. between false constructs. So just to close that loop, I think that... So what I'm exploring now is that... Like, so what was the, the essence of that, that thing I was too tight about with Maurice? I was being a, bit, a little bit too local, and too tight in the early stages of the learning process of something, which in that moment was a chess opening, a, a branch of the Knight of Sicilian. I'm exploring. I was. What about, is that word just to spell for people? Nijdorf. Nijdorf. Um, Miguel Nijdorf was a was a brilliant chess player. N a j d o r f. And there's a very it's Sicilian defense is a chess opening. So it's a Nijdorf variation of the Sicilian defense. It was just sounds like something from the Princess Bride. Continue. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, chess openings have, have funny names sometimes, but yeah. So I was, so the interesting question is, is that tightness, is, is there a shared root structure in, relative to that tightness in the learning process today? And it, For it, you. For me, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, there was a moment where Dan and I were whipping into a big, um, a, a big wave uh, um, called, called mo- we call mobs here, where um, to, to left on foil, he was on a jet ski, I was behind it, and he came, you know, he was whipping into it, and there's a big bear rock that that bear that just that gets sucked out, and there's basically a big dry rock on the whip in. And it was interesting because this was the, in the first few days of us taking on um, toe toe foiling, and in that moment, like I, there was a tightness in me. Right now, we come close to that rock all the time, e foiling. Um, we, I think, we'll be very comfortable playing right there soon. Um, toe foiling but in that moment I was in the early stages of a learning process and it was very similar because in that moment there was an improvisational nature to that moment it was playful it was actually not such a big risk relative to what we do all the time um, but there was there was a, a, a tightness in me because I, we were learning something new technically in that moment I wanted to work on the deconstructive component parts of toe foiling and then work on like that kind of thing so I do think that it's interesting for me to explore, is there some identity in the idea that I need to deconstruct first? Um, similarly, questions like parallel learning, lateralization, I would say one of my biggest strengths as a learner has been the ability to translate from previous arts into current arts. It's interesting to invert that. Are there ways that might be holding me back? Mm-hmm. Is the idea of lateralizing or parallel learning um, impeding my learning process in any way? So these are, these are assumptions that I might have that I might hold tightly. I don't know. It, it's very interesting to take our assumptions and examine them, flip them upside down, rip them apart. May I ask you about one potentially backwards approach that I want to know more about? Yeah. Specific, specific to your notes in the Slack channel. And that is a quote that also one of your team members asked you about. So the internal spirit is the teacher or myself 20 years from now. I'm most interested in the last part of that. We could talk about the whole thing, but what does that mean? Or myself 20 years from now? 
Yeah, that came out of me a few months ago when I was trying to explain to a buddy of mine in the surf world this bizarre way that, that I'm approaching this stuff. Because um, it looks really strange to people sometimes. And, and, and what I was saying was sort, sort of in a, in a thematic way, it's as if myself 20 years from now is my teacher. And, and what I mean, is, for, first, there's two ways of looking at it. One is that I know myself decades into arts. Like I know myself decades into chess and into the martial arts. And so I have a feeling for what I am like when I'm in the realm of virtuosity within an art. Um, and so in a sense, that person is like, that's a beacon that I'm moving toward, right? And I'm nowhere near that realm as a surfer and a foiler, I'm, but, but I've been there. And so, so, so qualitatively, in terms of some like abstract platonic realm of quality, there's that beacon for me. And there's the other part of it, which is that no one will know me better than myself 20 years from now. And if my goal is unobstructed self-expression or self-actualization within an art, then the person who is teaching me should be the person who knows me most deeply. And that's my person 20 years from now. The person 20 years from now is also a helpful visualization in in being the person who would understand what my false constructs are today and yesterday and a year from now. And it's very easy to get stuck in the mindset we, I didn't know before, but I, I know today. It reminds me, there was this funny moment years ago when I was first studying Tai Chi. Um, and I was in William C.C. Chen's Tai Chi studio. This was back in, I think, I think it was 1988, 1998, 1999. And there was this guy who had been studying for decades and he was telling a story. And he was sort of holding court within his knowledge of wisdom within this domain. And he said, you know, when I studied Chai Chi for a year, I thought I knew what I was doing. And I thought I was really starting to understand it. But after two years, I realized everything I thought after a year was wrong. It was just wrong. But now I understood. And then after four years, I realized everything I thought after two years was wrong. And he went on with this story and this pattern, but now I understood. Then when after eight years, the same thing, everything I thought after four years was wrong. And now I've been training for 16 years. And everything I thought after eight, eight years was wrong. But now I, I, I finally understand. And, and I remember thinking at the time, man, you got it, but you didn't get it. Like, the point is, you don't know now either, right? Like, after 16 years, you've been going through this repetition. What about after 32 years? So, I, so part of that visualization is designed to help me know that I don't know. Yeah. Right? And... And um, which is so important. It's so easy to think that we were in the dark yesterday, but we're in the light today. <laughs> but we're fucking in the in the in the dark today too. So I've I have a question about the self twenty years from now because a follow up question. Part of what I enjoy about these these conversations with the mics is that with you know we get to hopefully edge into some stuff that we haven't talked about because we talk all the time and i don't think i've ever told you about the piece of writing i lost that pained me the most and the piece of writing that i lost was the following i was uh, for some reason maybe feeling under the weather or had an injury something like that and i was unable to join some friends skiing and i was very upset about this uh, I, I love skiing. And I was sitting in a lodge, love ski lodges, so that's the upside. And there's beautiful fire, so on, got some hot chocolate, because that's what I do when I'm feeling moody and want to stuff my emotions in a ski lodge. And I, I had paper, and I wrote this, this long story about a guy, a.k.a. young, young Tim, 
wandering into a ski lodge, sitting down and having this older gentleman, about 20 years older, kind of sit across the, the table near the fire by him and striking up a conversation. And I only realized later this, that this is very close to a story by, uh, I think it's uh, Jorge Luis Borges, but ended up being this surreal interaction between my younger self and my older self and asking my older self for advice on all these various topics over the course of a few hours of sitting there in the ski lodge. And I looked at the advice after I had been writing all of this for five to 10 pages and the advice made sense. Like a lot of the advice seemed like very probably it could be the advice that a 20 year uh, older self would give me with some detachment from the emotions of the current situation. And somehow, some way I ended up losing it. And that it bothers me to this day because I thought it was, uh, there was so much there that I felt was really insightful and actionable. And it's wild that it came from the same head that had created so much confusion around those same situations. It's so beautiful. Why so, don't you rewrite it, man? Uh, I, so I have actually not rewritten it in exactly that same way, but I've asked myself, for instance, there are a bunch of decisions that I'm trying to make right now. What would my, I'm 42 right now, 47 year old or 50 year old self tell me to do right now as it relates to these decisions. There's a lot less turbulence, right? Around uh, a lot less kind of cloud cover when looking at it with a bit of detachment in that way. I'm curious if you ever kind of take it that literally or have tried to look at your current decisions or situations through the lens of an older self in that fashion. You know, just a quick aside before I go there, I, I think it's a really interesting question to ask people. What, what, like, how would your 20-year-older self guide you today? Because it gives you a window into somebody's ability to perspective take and to think conceptually. In other words, like, think about the, the old David Foster Wallace, This is Water, um, that story of, you know, two fish are swimming in the water and two young fish and an older fish come by, comes by and says, how's the water, boys? And they look at one another as they swim by and like, what the hell is he talking about water, right? Most people can't see the water because they're just used to the water. Um, but it's very different to actually be able to see our mental models, our frames. So people are usually looking at the world through their frames. They're, you know, We can also cultivate the ability to look through the frame, but also see the frame. And, and I spent a lot of my life working on examining the frame itself, right? I, I think that you know, years ago, we did one of these, these chats together and I described the drowning experience I had mm -hmm. where I made some errors in, um, <laughs> in breath hold work. That's one way to put it. Right. <laughs> We've already gone there. We don't have to do this all over <laughs> again. But just, just give the, give the, the 30 second version. Oh, you, okay. can do it. you can do it, Josh. The 30 second version is that I was doing um, some Wim Hof inspired breath hold work. I made the mistake of doing it during um, multiple... Um, Lots of reps of underwater swims, 50-meter swims at a pool in New York City. And on my like eighth or tenth rep, I blacked out in a bliss state. And I spent four minutes in the bottom of the pool after blacking out from oxygen deprivation. Um, this old guy pulled me out, and, um, and which I'm eternally grateful for. And I basically drowned. All the doctors said after 45 to 60 seconds, I should have been brain dead or dead. But it was four minutes. Um, on the bottom of the pool, and that my training saved me. Uh, like, like, also, you could say, <laughs> put me there, but that's a whole other conversation. There was, a, 
so that we, we've discussed that whole experience yeah. at length. We don't have to go in there in depth. Um, but but I think that 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 inspired a version of this this thinking, I, I, and it led to a lot of the life decisions that that I've made and our family has made, living the life we live today, which is very much off the grid. Um, because I emerged from that experience just with, I mean, I I was someone who filled with a lot of love and and, a, and appreciation for doing what one loves. But that went into overdrive, and I just decided that I would devote my life to living as fully and deeply and beautifully as I possibly can, helping my loved ones live as fully and deeply and beautifully as they could, and making as large a positive impact on the world as I could. And that was just all that mattered. And I, um, and we uprooted our life and changed everything. So I think that 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 mortality experience, um, and and I, um, I mean that that was the most powerful catalyst for that kind of thinking. And, and I should just uh, note that, thankfully, I've not had that experience. But about a year ago, at a retreat, uh, group retreat, there were a number of writing exercises that we were instructed to do. And one of them was to respond to a prompt. And the prompt was pretend as though or imagine that you are going to die exactly two years from today. You will die in perfect health. Just the clock will run out. Two years from today, you will die. What will you do in the next two years? What are the things that you would do? And I realize that's somewhat different from having a near-death experience and then reprioritizing, but it does apply a certain pressure and a certain sense of urgency that I think you would get from either situation. And that, that prompt and what I wrote afterwards gave me a tremendous amount of clarity about certain things that I wanted to do. And another prompt was, if you were going to die in two years in perfect health, what, left undone, what would you most regret not doing? So, so similar question, but slightly different wording. That also provided me with a tremendous amount of clarity about certain things uh, that I followed through on. So it can be simulated in that way. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that, you know, I, I, we, we've over the years discussed this term firewalking that I use for physiologically embodying something we're trying to learn. Um, so for example, if you're training in the martial arts and you overextend your arm and you get arm barred and your like elbow gets broken or your shoulder gets ripped up, for example, in a world championship, you're less likely to overextend your arm next time, right? <laughs> to say the least. But if you watch someone else do it on a video, it's hard to learn that lesson. But if you like, if you learn how to physiologically embody the experience that you're watching someone else go through, or that you're thinking about in the abstract, right? Then we can save ourselves a huge amount of how does pain. one how does one do that, or how might one do that? How have you, uh, or how have you coached someone to do that effectively? Whether it's chess, jujitsu investing otherwise well i think intense visualization get it like really training at visualization which one can do through meditative experience um i think biofeedback training is really useful to help learn how to put yourself in the different physiological states at will because um, you can actually use biofeedback to observe what state you're in if you just don't sense it so quickly introspectively um harnessing triggers for <laughs> i was i was with my uh, with my wife and a bunch of friends the other day and, and um, I haven't watched the Oscars in years, but the Oscars was on and Eminem's performance of lose yourself came on. 
And I, it's funny, Lose Yourself was the song that I used in the two, my training camp for the 2004 World Championships. In, so for the three months of the last, of every day of training, I listened to it before every fight of the World Championship in 2004, in between the semis and the finals, and in between the finals and the sudden death playoff, when I've been in the wildest state of my life. That song is such a deeply fucking burned in trigger. I, was, I had my, my eight-year-old son in my lap. We were watching the Oscars. My three-year-old was sleeping on my other shoulder. And Lose Yourself came on. And my body was ready to fight 15 dudes. Like, it was unbelievable what happened to me. I had to just leave and I took a walk for 10 minutes. Like Unbelievable how powerful triggers are. Whether it's olfactory triggers with smell or music. Um, connecting triggers, <laughs> different physiological things. I'm not suggesting that one, one should should have something that, I mean, that's that's a pretty intense one. That's yeah, like that's some like the, the Nikita stuff. That's like, yeah, Manchurian candidate stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I, <laughs> I mean, that, I was, it was kind of amazing to feel how powerful that was so many years later, just just right there. So I think that that learning how to put your, I mean, learning how to put yourself into an intense, intense physiological state through visualization. Um, for example, cold plunging, your body will go into an intense physiological state. You can attach a trigger to that. Then you can go into that kind of fight or flight state if you choose to. So for example, one of the things you do cold plunging is you get into, say, freezing water, and then you learn to breathe yourself. It takes a while initially, but then pretty quickly into a state of calm. Like your heart rate goes very fast, you're hyperventilating a little bit, then you just chill it out, and then you're in a calm state. You can also choose not to go there. You can choose to get in the water and not breathe to that state of calm. And then you can sit in that state of alarm and that can become a state that you could use as a trigger for certain kinds of visualization. So there's lots of things that you can do if you're creative about firewalking. What are some of the ways that you build outside of foiling? Because I know that's a main focus, so I have to kind of grab you by the hair to pull you out of foiling. But And you do foil a lot. Uh, what are other ways that you've built feedback loops into your life? Well, feedback loops are, are everything. I mean, it, you, you can... It's funny, I was talking, one of, the, one of the funny things about my conversations with Maurice, because I really left the chess world behind, and it was fascinating just talking to him about how it's evolved so much. And one of the questions that I was asking him is, how present are world-class chess players today to the networks of cognitive biases? And he said that, that what's interesting is that many of the great chess players today actually don't even know what cognitive biases are. And one of the reasons that they're able to do that is because chess today you just have such unlimited accurate feedback loops because you've got computers that are much stronger than humans analyzing the position by your side. So any decisions you make, you can look over and see if it's right or wrong. And the computers are so strong that they're going to be right. And so you, you can basically have a feedback loop whenever you want. And so you just if you have unlimited feedback loops and you're training six, eight hours a day, you just learn to feel when your thinking is good and when it's bad. So just to clarify, in other words cognitive biases right this is a we, we we won't go too broad but an example of that would be something like sunk cost fallacy right so players back in the day would have some conceptual understanding of how to define sunk cost fallacy and what that means but today it's more a intuition built upon thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of near immediate feedback loops right so the way sunk cost fallacy could operate consciously for a chess player is that you're studying a chess position, you've invested 20 minutes into it, and you're starting to sense it might, you might be barking up the wrong tree, but you put so much time into it, you want to keep on going, mm -hmm. right? Or that could just manifest without any consciousness of the bias in just that your thinking doesn't feel good. 
or you're, in the moment you're thinking starts to feel a little bit less present or less on it, then you just go the other way, right? Or like you can have a confirmation bias where you're, you, you can think, okay, right now, am I or am I not searching for proof of something that I've, for a decision I've already reached, right? Um, or you can just not be subject to confirmation bias because you've had it burned out of you by so many reps of feedback loops just beating the shit out of you whenever you get it wrong, right? So in arts where you have massive amounts of natural, accurate feedback loops, you don't have to be as conscious about these things. On the other end of the spectrum, something like investing, it's very, very hard to have accurate feedback loops because the decisions you make today, if you're a long-term investor, the decisions you make today, you might not actually see the result of that decision for many years. And you could have had good process and still have bad outcome, or you could have bad process and still have good outcome. So you have to, so it might not be an accurate feedback loop, even if you do have the feedback loop. And so in realms like that, you have to be really creative. And I would argue that a lot of what defines the learning curve of, of someone in a field like investing where accurate feedback loops are few and far between is how creative you are in, create, in, in manifesting them. For example, you can have somatic feedback loops. You can use biofeedback to understand when your performance state is at a high level of quality or a lower level of quality. What does it correlate to physiologically? Exactly. So when you're thinking, well, what does that mean? What is the biofeedback saying? And then yeah, you learn to feel what's, what's what the, the physical signature. What's the signature exactly. of those good decisions? Right. Which we use biofeedback for initially, but then we learn to, we learn from the biofeedback how to sense, how to feel it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of what I, you know, when I'm training people in like elite mental performers, a lot of what we're doing is being extremely creative in designing accurate feedback loops in places where it's not so so unrelated. So you asked me about myself. Oh, it's, it's, I mean, you told me not to speak about foiling because, but, but, but it's difficult because like, that's what I'm yeah, all yeah, in on now. Yeah. So like, I'm training in paddle surfing and foiling. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm going to kind of swat that deflection aside. <laughs> I mean, cause that's Go what I'm it. all in on yeah, now. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so what I, so, I mean, I have, I've learned that feedback works for me sometimes and other times I don't want it. So for example, I have a buddy who, who um, does drone footage of us once or twice a week on a cadence relative to the swell, but also relative to where we are in the learning process. Usually I'll study video very closely and then I'll spend four or five days training without video feedback at the thing that I'm working on. And then I'll, then I'll have drone footage again. So I will have video feedback at a pace that feels appropriate to my learning process. Cause there's sometimes you want, I find that you, you want to internalize you want to work on what you're feeling internally without an external eye. Yeah, totally. And then sometimes you want the external eye. And I honor that. I really trust that. Similar to, in, in for example, the in let's just say you're training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and you've got a tournament coming up. Your repertoire tightens, right? You, you, it condenses down to what you're best at. But then you have a period of time where after the tournament, where they say you're not going to compete for two months, you might have an experimental um, repertoire that you're playing with. Things that by definition you're not very, you're not as good at but that you're, you're, you're expanding, you're, you're investing in loss a little bit, you're getting beaten up by some people who you couldn't beat up with your best repertoire, but you're, you're working on things. So in that moment, if you're studying video in that period, you might reject what you're doing because it's not as good as you can be. Yeah. So that's an interesting period to just work on somatically dialing in something and feeling your way into something. Yeah, I think I just want to underscore that because I think it's really important, and that is it's not always true that more feedback is better. Right? Absolutely. And if I look at a lot of the best teachers in gymnastics, in skiing, for instance. They're very 
one of the terms, one of the phrases that, that, that I heard a lot in gymnastics was like the first three reps don't count, right? Because if someone's trying something brand new, their first few reps are going to suck. They're going to be terrible, right? But they're going, if they have a, a bit of awareness in other techniques or other practices, they're going to be getting a feel for it over those first few repetitions. And if you're just hitting them with 20 different sets of instructions, every rep, it's going to be counterproductive. Right. And I think that there's feedback that you're internally generating based on how you feel and how you observe, you look on video or something. Right. And then there's feedback that a coach or a trainer might be giving you. For a coach or a trainer to give you feedback, they have to, like, for you to let that feedback in, in my view, they have to know you very deeply. So there's a lot of trainers, for example, who can't get outside of their own conceptual scheme. So they tell you what you should do based on what they would do or what would work for them or what they would want to do if they were in your shoes in that moment. But that's very different from what you need to do in your learning process or what you're ready to stretch for in your learning process. When I'm working with people in a training capacity, you know, I have ways of observing um, my core partners in training, um, like professionally, you know, through their journals, through their brainstorms, through their biometrics, through lots of different things. And, and I will, it's 99.9% observation. And I will, might see something that I would like to give feedback on, or that I think I might make, you know, give some feedback on. And then I'll observe it sometimes for weeks or months or even years until the moment is right. Or I will have a hypothesis that I'll test and then I'll think about what would be the way to explore this that would be most helpful and not lock somebody else up, right? So, so much of what most coaches that I observe live with is their own ego pattern. Their ego pattern in they're stuck in their conceptual schemes, but also they want to have the egoic satisfaction of telling you you're doing something wrong or, or, or making you better. But the great coaches will actually coach without someone even being aware that they've been coached. Question for you on stress testing your own thinking. So I read the Slack channel, which is comprised of interactions, uh, mostly your sharing of ideas and thoughts, and then the asking for clarification by your teammates, right, who are employees. How else do you stress test your thinking or positions on things? Do you have a proactive way of doing that? Does it just happen naturally in your interaction with various friends? Uh, because you have, you have physically somewhat isolated yourself, right? Uh, how, do you, how do you think about stress testing the integrity of your thinking and positions? Yeah, great question. So, I mean, I, I've physically isolated myself, as you point out, <laughs> but also somewhat technologically isolated. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm not on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or any of those yeah, things. Yeah, stay off. Go ahead. I said stay off. Yeah, that's the game plan. <laughs> um, but I have, I have a really wonderful network of close friends and thought partners, yourself included, who I, I am in dialogue with and who I really trust. And I don't have a lot of dialogue with people who I don't think highly of. Um, and so, I mean, for example, around what I'm working on actively in my training process, Dan Caulfield, who I'm, I'm, you know, we're out there on the water four or five hours a day together. He knows me, you know, as intimately. I mean, our friendship was born in fighting one another for thousands of hours, literally. That's a hell of a way to begin a friendship um, as sparring partners. And then we still spar quite a bit out there on the water. And, and, and so, like, I mean, we're always stress testing things together. Um, Emily Kwok, who is just an awesome woman who's been my right-hand human for about a decade. Um, she's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu 
um, black belt women's world champion two times over. She's my chief of staff and runs our whole operation. Um, she's the boss of our whole thing. And she's, I mean, Emily, one thing that Emily's really brilliant at is, is I mean, we have a shared consciousness. She understands um, me very deeply. And she is very good at pointing out to me when I'm speaking in a shorthand that other people aren't understanding. So she pushes me to deconstruct quite a bit um, for our dialogue within the team and, you know, more broadly. Um, is there a risk that if you are of the hive mind together that you have the same blind spots and therefore are at risk of missing flaws in thinking? Or, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I all have dialogue, but I have dialogue with, I mean, I have, I have, I'm not sure how many different channels of dialogue open with, with, um, you know, I have clients who I work with who are, I think some of the best thinkers in the world who I'm talking about ideas with, but I think to, just to dig in, to dig into your point, I think that absolutely yes. And so you need to have people in your ecosystem who push against you. And I, in our surf and foil ecosystem, I mean, it's Dan and I have this kind of abstract, bizarre way of going about things <laughs> and almost everybody else who we're in dialogue with, we have a group of, of six of us who are doing this together. I mean, three of them think we're just completely crazy. <laughs> the Jackson Pollocks of the foiling <laughs> right. world. Pushing back on everything we're doing relentlessly, which is awesome. And yeah. I'm sure some things they're absolutely right about. I, I think that we need to build pushback against us. Resistance is a huge part of everything we do. Now, the one thing that makes it a lot easier in a competitive discipline, like jujitsu, for example, or chess, <laughs> is that if you get something wrong, you get your ass kicked. Yeah, right. These arts where it's not so, I mean, the wave can kick your ass, but, mm -hmm. but in terms of other things, it's, it's much more abstract. And yeah. so there's a lot more room for people to bullshit themselves. Well, to give a, to give a current example for myself and some of the conversations we had, we do, and are having, we don't have to get into the super specifics of positions and stuff, but as it relates to investing, right? I would say something to you as I did yesterday, like, here's a statement. I want to give you a statement and I want you to try to tear it apart. Right. And I find that extremely helpful. Right. Even if you happen to agree with it, right. Just to say, all right, I want you to try to, I'm going to share my current approach or what I'm thinking. And I want you to really try to tear it apart. As, a, as someone with uh, a very uh, powerful <laughs> sort of CPU within your head. Uh, I find that to be really valuable for me to proactively solicit that kind of feedback. Uh, I think cultivating a, a, a close ecosystem of people who you can trust to be honest with you in their pushback is really important. Because a lot of people, a lot of people are surrounded by yes men and yes women who will not do that. Do, do you find, and I mean, this is such a maybe cliched example, but it's a good example nonetheless. I mean, if you look at the partnership between Buffett and Munger, right? The the a lot of the discussion I've seen about their partnership is how complementary and different their thought processes are in some respects. In the investing world, do you find, as an example, that people who might self-identify as value investors tend to just hang out with other value investors? Or are there people who are, are some of the better performers you meet? Do they deliberately expose themselves to people who have a different playbook to sort of push at the edges of their assumptions? Well, first of all, it's important to note that like, I, I don't spend time with like most with a lot of investors. Like I, I right. spend time with a very small group of investors who I think are awesome people and who I think approach things in a very unusual way. So I can talk about 
how these people who I know very deeply operate around this question, but I don't, but I think it's pretty unusual. I mean, in my observation, the people who are really operating at a world-class level who I'm aware of in the investment world are engaging surprisingly little with other investors. Hmm. They're, they're separating themselves. Um, so they're not susceptible to groupthink. I mean, often their interactions with other investors will be mostly as contraindicators as opposed to indicators. And, and just to push back a little bit on, uh, I mean, or to speak to the other side of what you just said, I agree wholeheartedly that it's really important to stress test what we're doing. But I think that there's also something a little bit crazy and messianic about certain people who become really, really great at things. And like, I think about Marcelo Garcia, for example, who we've talked about a lot over the years, who's my partner in the school we own together in New York, the Marcelo Garcia Jiu-Jitsu Academy. He's a nine-time BJJ world champion, Abu Dhabi world champ. Um, I would argue maybe, I mean, pound for pound, probably the greatest grappler to ever live. If you, which, is, which is an opinion a lot of people hold. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Um, if you just like YouTube or whatever, look at Marcelo Garcia. I mean, you, yeah. you'll be check out the Marcelo team. Yeah, he does a lot of amazing, amazing shit. Um, and what's interesting is if you, when Marcelo was competing, if you went with him to competition and you felt him in training camps, you know, I've been in a lot of training camps with him and we've sparred a lot in training camps and I felt him in that, in that physiological state, which is like, you're fighting an ape. It's a really (laughs) simian physical intelligence It's wild. I mean, his lats are like hands in the precision of how they close around your neck. It's, it's pretty amazing. Um, but there's a confidence that he goes into things. And it's the kind of thing where you can walk into a room where no one believes in you but yourself. But your self-belief is so profound that you're unstoppable. And the, the way I relate to that, if you try to deconstruct it, is that like, that kind of sense of inevitability of success comes from self-expression. From knowing that you're playing your game and you're playing your game better than anyone else in the world could. And you've built everything around the uniqueness of who you are. And like, but you, there are moments, I remember when Marcelo was, there was one moment when Marcelo was in a, a Munjalis and he was fighting um, this guy, Kalasans, who's a just brilliant, brilliant fighter on his own right. And Kalasans went for a wrist lock and Marcelo pulled out. And then Marcelo put his hand right back into a wrist lock, looked Kalasans right in the eye and let him try. And just stared him in the eye while Kalasans tried to close the rim. And he just, so he didn't avoid the technique. He just tried to break this man by putting himself into the thing and saying, you will not, like, you can't break me. And you can break someone by being unbreakable. And there's something about that kind of self-belief that is really powerful. And there's something about approaching things in really unorthodox ways that you don't really know if it's going to work until it plays out. I mean, I'll give you, like, a, a very basic, much more simplistic example of that. The idea that Dan and me training in the e-foil stuff was going to translate over to the foil stuff was something I had tremendous confidence in. But, I mean pretty much everyone who I spoke to in the surf and foil world thought we were dead wrong and thought we were just barking up the wrong tree. And if you look at the footage side by side of those two different tools, I could see why someone would conclude that. Right? For sure, because yeah. the e is way heavier. You're on like a 70-pound instrument, um, and you're, you know, it's got a different dynamics, but you're foiling, and you're foiling fast, and you're getting tons of reps. And the e-foil, I would argue, is much harder to learn than a, than a lighter foil in that it's more high consequence. If you get hit by it, it's bad. You're dealing with a machine. Um, you can die. Lots of things. But, <laughs> but the thing is that it's, but it's an amazing creation and you get so many more reps. So learning on the thing, you just get, I'm not sure if it would be early on 100x, 500x the reps. And so if it might be harder to learn on some level, it's actually much easier to learn because you can dial it in. But the belief that it will translate over comes from sort of a deeply intuitive thing. So if I stress tested that 
with by talking to other people in the foil world, I would have rejected it. But I, I, and, and what's interesting is that when, when we translated it over to being whipped in on the lightest, most high-performance board possible on foil, it all translated right over. Now, I want to push back on one thing. Do it. And that, <laughs> and that is, if you had stress-tested it, you would have rejected it. I'm going to, I'm going to offer that it's entirely possible for you to get, to get a lot of contraindicating feedback and still hold your position. Oh, for sure. You're right. And, uh, and I did, yeah. I mean, a lot, I was getting a lot of that. Yeah. So I, I think you're right. You just have to handle the stress testing correctly. Now those, right. as I've, I've read, you put it in your private journal, those were reps hidden in plain sight, right? Or there are reps hidden in plain sight, like the front side turns just by going in circles as opposed to being on a wave at all. Right? Just think about that. Actually, just like that front side turn thing. It's such a funny idea. Like, a front side turn, let's just say you're riding a wave, you drop down the face of a wave, and then you do a bottom turn. So it means you're like turning on the bottom of a wave, like you go into the flats in front of a wave, and you're bottom turning back up, to back up into the wave. Right? That would be like a front side turn. You're turning on the side that you're facing on the board, right? Meaning like your belly button is facing away from the wave when you turn, just for, right? No, your belly button is facing toward the wave. Oh, it is. Turn. That's a front side That's turn. That's a front side turn. Oh, yeah. wow. That's confusing. So... So, like, I realized that my, my cutbacks, my backside turns on, on a, going on a, on a right, on a frontside wave. I know it's a little, anyway, my, my frontside turns were, were lacking. So what was I, I was able to do on the e-foil, it's so ridiculous. I put on a, a big front wing and a very, very small tail wing, which allows you to, the small tail wing allows you to have maximized turn, turnability. And I just started to spin in circles under power. And I was using a folding prop. So if a wave came, I could enter the wave, the prop would fold and enter the wave. So in between sets, I was spinning in circles. So I would be spinning in these tight circles for two minutes at a time, just countless. I mean, if you were to add up the amount of turn time that I got in that one session to how many frontside turns you'd have to make, I mean, that I don't know, thousands and thousands and thousands of waves of frontside turns, right? And then whenever a wave would come, I would just drop into it and work on that same body mechanic. And then I'd go back to spinning in circles. I looked like a total madman. If anyone would have been watching me, they would, it was like the ultimate, like, like what the hell is this ridiculous Looney, human Looney, doing? Looney Tunes. But I made such huge growth in that moment. Can you think of other places in other arts, whether it's chess, BJJ, push hands, investing, anywhere, where you might find reps hidden in plain sight or a way to do that type of deliberate practice that is uncommon? Well, I think, I think yes, everywhere. So we could get into a technical discussion of reps hidden in plain sight, like the front side turn, which is technical, right? Which is, I think, a fairly obvious one. I think that where the really potent, low-hanging fruit, um, you know, hanging in plain sight... Um, like lie are, are in the, the thematic, right? Are in like breaking down the learning process into the core principles or themes we want to work on and doing reps of those. Those are just invisible to people in plain sight. Right. So you mean, this is an example, maybe I'm pulling out the wrong example, but the learning the macro from the micro, say with the practicing of the end game in chess with just a handful of pieces on the board. Would that be an example? Or is that not? A yeah, good so that that would be an example of. I mean, that's a great example of reps hidden in plain sight, where you're you're basically setting king and pawn against king to get a feel for the essence of the king and the essence of the pawn. Then you're setting rook and pawning and learning about the essence of the rook. So you're getting tons of reps of the rook of the pawn. Then you study chess tactics with rook and pawn tactics, and you're getting tons of reps of those things. So that's an example of of ways that you can get reps of individual pieces, right? Um, so that's those are, that's a great example. The way I would say of, of of reps hidden in plain sight. 
when I'm thinking about conceptual or thematic reps hidden in plain sight, it's more around, I mean, to, to, for example, one th- when we took on surfing and foiling, one of the things that, that we did that was strange was, that, you know, I was much more comfortable in big waves than small waves initially because I was comfortable with breath holds and I was comfortable with intensity and small waves in some ways are much more technical. And I, I just simply like I hadn't. Um, and, and so I made the decision early on to, to, to surf and foil big wave, bigger waves before I really took on smaller waves. It might be a strange idea, but, but the kind of rep that I had to get, get was glide getting used to moving fast forward sideways, right? So for example, the one wheel, the e-foil, these were getting tons of reps in just the, in, in the idea of glide. Learn to feel what glide was like, right? And just as an example that might be parallel, and I, I, please tell me if I'm, I'm not getting this right, but in terms of deconstructing and taking one theme like that, uh, so I, I am visiting you with my girlfriend, and she's new to water in the in the capacity of surfing, paddling, etc. And rather than take a bunch of surf lessons, which was the kind of knee jerk uh, idea that both of us had, it's like, oh yeah, that's what you do. Take some surf lessons. And your recommendation was to consider taking out a boogie board and just getting used to the sort of force and dynamics of the wave movement. Yeah, when I watch how people approach surf teaching, I think for the most part it's crazy. Like people, for the most surf teachers mostly teach people to surf by just going out and surfing. Like, let's go out and surf. Yeah, right. And they get their ass kicked because you have to learn to read the water, how to pop up on the board, how to, where, to enter the, where to enter a wave, then how to turn. Um, where to stand on the board, how to shift your weight, and all this stuff. I mean, in my opinion, like I mean, yeah, what we did w- with with um, your girlfriend is we went out and pushed her into a bunch of waves boogie boarding. Just learned to feel what glide was like on on the water. Also, not traumatize her, and then learned to feel what different parts of the wave, the energy in different parts of the wave. And the last wave she got on her first day was actually in the pocket of a wave. I pushed her in right where it was breaking, right where she'd surf it, and she was so stoked. And she had a great positive first experience, and she felt glide, and it was awesome. As opposed to like just getting super frustrated in the beginning, and I, I think the deconstructing it is is really important. You know, an interesting example of thematic deconstruction relative to reps hidden in plain sight would be, for example, this idea around being at peace in chaos, or being learning to be okay internally, or even to thrive internally when your body is in alarm, right? Because if you don't train at that, then when your body goes into alarm, you're just alarmed. But if you do train at that, for example, you can train at it like we discussed through cold plunging or different things that that controlled ways of putting your body into that state and breathing through it. Then you've trained at that meta theme, right, of being at peace in physiological alarm and then working through it. And then when you're in in, in a, for example, a surf moment where you're in a total shit show. Then you've trained at that most important part of it, how to breathe through it, right? You've learned how to literally technically breathe through the alarm, right? As opposed to trying to do that when you're also trying to read the water and figure out if you're about to hit a rock and you're in the middle of a hold down and you, 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 you've got one breath you can take between the next set and everything's freaked out. You don't know what the hell's going on, right? So I think that, that that's an example of how to deconstruct things down to component parts and work on them. And I think it's actually, it simplifies the learning process in a lot of ways because then when you put it all together, 
you've learned the critical component parts, the thematic component parts. Yeah. Like reading the water. I mean, that's something that I think should be done independently of just going out to learn how to surf. Mm-hmm. Um, but very few, te- some do, but very few surf teachers actually just work people, with people on reading the water when they're yeah. not surfing. Yeah, and the, the, the best teachers I've run into on water, for instance, a uh, good friend of mine, Kelly Starrett, incredible uh, performance coach, physical therapist, all-around hilarious guy, also former world-class kayaker. And we spent time on the Grand Canyon together with his family. And that's exactly what he did. Before attempting anything technical, before learning any new skills, he's like, I just want you to move with me and I want you to watch the water. And he would explain it once and we'd get to the next set of rapids and he'd go, okay, what do you see? Where's the tongue? Where would you go? Right? It's hypothetical before just throwing me in with 20 new skills to try to juggle simultaneously. But that takes empathy as a coach. Yeah. He's a, he's a, he is a, he is an exceptional, exceptional coach. Yeah. He's very good at it. The the Buddhist technique of expedient means or liberative technique, depending on, on how it's translated of, of teaching, of being aware of what the student is ready to stretch for and going there. That's taking yourself outside of your own conceptual scheme as a teacher and understanding what the, the, the student needs. Right. I mean, that's, I think that's at the very, that's like principle 101 as a teacher. But yeah. very few people really internalize it. Yeah, Kelly and you are both very good also at ensuring that the first few experiences are at the very least non-threatening, right? So that they may not be orgiastic celebrations of joy, but at the very least, they're not going to be traumatizing. Right. He's very good at that, whether it's Olympic weightlifting or kayaking on what can be very, very scary rapids at different points, ensuring that the, the first few experiences, as you're just getting a toehold on the basic sensations of a new skill, are non-traumatizing. I've learned that. I, I think if you, some people in my, my past might not say that was a core strength. But <laughs> 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 we can let that one go for now. <laughs> Well, we're uh, we're coming up on a very exciting afternoon here, so I know we we don't have uh, too much too much time left. But I'd love to ask you, maybe in closing, about Robert Keegan. Am I getting the pronunciation of that name correct? Yeah. Who is Robert Keegan? Why is he interesting to you? So, our friend Graham Duncan first turned me on to um, to Keegan many years ago, and I read his work, but I've been in the last couple of years, just becoming increasingly impressed with certain core points that he's zoned in on. He's just a, brill- a brilliant adult developmental psychologist, and a lot of his work is around the, the transitions in the human mind from an opportunistic to a socialized to a self-authoring um, to a self-transformative kind of mindset. And, and if we just zone in mostly around the transition between the socialized mind and the self-authored mind, which is... Yeah, hold that thought. May I ask, does Graham find this... Is he focused on this mostly in the context of talent acquisition or finding good talent? Is this is this sort of part of his filter in doing that? Yes, mm-hmm. I think that, that that was how he initially was drawn into it, and I think now it's just you know part of his worldview. Just, just a lens, yeah. yeah, just a lens, and it's one of many very interesting lenses. I, I don't tend to have like think that one lens has got it all, but I yeah. one the thing that I'm intrigued with with Keegan's work, which I have a huge amount of respect for, 
is the exploration of the limitations of the socialized mind. Sometimes we can just will somebody to be able to perspective take, to release their perspective and take on someone else's perspective. Or the ability to hold men multiple mental models that are competing with one another and be at peace with that tension between them, right? We can just want people to do that. But there are certain developmental hurdles to that. And I think that that's an area that Keegan has really explored brilliantly. And I, I do encourage people to read Keegan's work um, How do you spell his last name? K-E-G-A-N. I, I, I think it's important to be empathically present to the developmental obstacles that we all might have around what we can and cannot do conceptually. I mean, it strikes me that we're all blind. It's just a matter of, A, accepting that we're blind and trying to figure out how we might be blind or what we might be blind to, perhaps is a better way to put it. Keegan... Yeah, and, and I agree. The, and for those interested, Graham, Graham and I had a, a really fun conversation on the podcast as well. So yep. I will create a short link to that. You Graham's can, a brilliant dude, yeah. a dear friend. I love him. Uh, and, and one of, I mean, he's the but, best mind I've ever run into in the world around um, the hunt for talent and the deconstruction of like potential world-class talent out there in the early stages. Best hair in the business also. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Severe follicle envy of Graham. So for those people interested, you can, yeah, I'll create a short link to that interview, that conversation at tim.blog forward slash Graham, G-R-A-H-A-M. Joshua, anything else you would like to, to mention, discuss, disabuse me of before we wrap up? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> a woodpecker is right now trying to put a hole in my office <laughs> I think that's a great place to close uh, <laughs> right. so Josh where can people find you I feel like your answer is the same as Laird Hamilton in the Pacific Ocean yes <laughs> <laughs> well until next time uh, thanks for hanging man and, thanks brother and uh, recording something for posterity to be continued hey man this was fun <laughs> <laughs> and everybody listening for show notes for links to everything Robert Keegan etc that we've discussed uh, there's also an incredible video that I'll try to track down of Maurice Ashley uh, with me playing chess hustlers which is just fantastic entertainment in New York City so I will link to that in the show notes just go to tim.blog forward slash podcast and until next time thanks for listening Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the, uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com all spelled out and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode of the Tim Ferriss Show is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time, if I could only take one supplement, what would it be? The answer is inevitably Athletic Greens. I view it as, and a lot of you now view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it way back in 2010 in the 4-Hour Body. 
and I did not get paid to do so. I've been using it since before that, and I use it in a lot of different ways. I travel with it to avoid getting sick or to help mitigate the likelihood of getting sick. I take it in the morning to ensure optimal performance, and overall, it covers my bases if I can't get what I need from whole food meals throughout the rest of the day. And if you want to give Athletic Greens a try, they're offering a free 20-count travel pack for first-time users. I nearly always travel with at least three or four of these one-dose bags. In other words, if you buy Athletic Greens as a first-time buyer, you now get, for a limited time, an extra $79 in free product. So check out the details at athleticgreens.com forward slash Tim. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Tim for your free travel pack with any purchase. This episode is brought to you by Helix Sleep. Last year, I focused on dramatically improving a few things. Surprise, surprise. Most notably, the quality of my sleep, which seems to affect just about everything. This led me to revisit, you name it, my daily routine, morning routine, exercise, diet, all the way to what I slept on. And I ended up getting all new beds here in Austin, Texas, including mattresses from Helix Sleep. Helix has built a sleep quiz that takes two minutes to complete, and they use the answers to match your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress. Whether you're a side sleeper, hot sleeper, cold sleeper, or you like plush, you like firm, with Helix, there's no more guessing or confusion. Just go to helixsleep.com forward slash Tim, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. That is their promise. For couples, Helix can even split the mattress down the middle, providing individual support needs and feel preferences for each side. They have a 10-year warranty, and you can test drive your mattress for 100 nights risk-free. Right now, Helix is offering up to $125 off of all mattress orders. Check it out. Get up to $125 off at helixsleep.com forward slash Tim. That's helixsleep.com forward slash Tim for $125 off your mattress order. Take a look. Helixsleep.com forward slash Tim. 